Thank you. Good job this morning, everybody on the music. I'm just always thankful when I go preaching churches that they don't ask me to do the music when I get there, because if you do, there may not be many people left for the preaching, I always kind of say. But uh, it's good to be here today. My name is David Jeffries. I'm the Executive Vice President of Louisiana Christian University. Yes, that used to be Louisiana College. That's usually most people's first question. Uh, my wife and I both graduated from there a few years ago, right? We won't say how many years ago, but uh, went back there about two, almost two years ago to serve as one of the vice presidents there, and uh, so I'm a Louisiana Baptist employee. And my wife, Stephanie, uh, just started working for the Louisiana Baptist Convention in their missions and ministry department, uh, not missions and ministry, missions department, missions, there we go. There's ministry taking place in missions too, I guess, but I get those kind of confused. Uh, we have four children. We're by ourselves this morning, but I've got three grown children that are like grown and on their own. Amen. Just got my third one off on that path. And uh, we have one daughter left at home who is 17 and in uh, the 11th grade. So we still have a little ways yet before we get to empty nest. We had a great time this weekend because we went on up to a little north of Jackson, Mississippi and spent time with our six week old granddaughter and her parents were there too, I guess. But uh, we were mostly there for her, and uh, they let us be there for her, and uh, we had a great time. The last, you know, 7.30 to 8 this morning, I got to hold her in my arms, and she wasn't crying with colic, and I got to watch her wake up and stretch and yawn and all those kind of things, so not, not a much better way to get going on a Sunday morning. Well, I'm glad that we're doing this together this morning, the Lord's Supper. Uh, I guess about a month ago, God kind of laid it on my heart because I go and preach in churches a good bit, just around, you know, within two hours usually of Alexandria. So I go down to, you know, I-10 and I'll go up to I-20, kind of is my range on where I go. And um, a lot of churches don't have pastors. It's not an easy thing right now to find a pastor to, to go to a church. And so I just, God kind of laid it on my heart to start asking the churches, uh, you know, when's the last time you've done Lord's Supper? Do you want to do it together? And um, so the church I've been at a good bit over in Harrisonburg, I kind of asked that question and they said, yeah, we haven't, our pastor's been gone a while, we haven't done this in a while, so let's do that together. And a couple of weeks ago we did that and so God laid it on my heart here and it just kind of worked out and uh, whenever he said the deacons had just talked about that and I called and or texted him and offered that, um, I thought that was just kind of one of those things that we need to do. Now, when my daughter, she's not here this morning, she stayed with her grandparents, my parents over in Pineville for the weekend. When my daughter was, I don't know, somewhere around 10-ish, I don't remember the exact age, we d- adopted her from China when she was six. Uh, so a couple of years later, and what she came to me and said wasn't that uncommon, but she came to us after church one day and kind of said, I'm done with Sunday school. And, you know, Kind of like, okay, why are you done with Sunday school this morning was the question. And it happened to be around Christmas time. And she said, well, like we've been, you know, every Christmas they talk about the story of baby Jesus and how he, you know, they they talk about the Christmas story. We do it every year. I've got it. There's nothing else for me to learn. I don't need to go back to Sunday school, right? So we said, yes, but no, you do need to go back to Sunday school. And we kind of had to share with her, there's some things in the life of the church that we do on a regular basis because they're that important. Jesus being born as a baby is, I mean, that's foundational to our faith, isn't it? 
So every Christmas we're going to do that. And guess what? Every Easter we're going to talk about his crucifixion and his resurrection. So just get over it. Go ask God to show you something new. Or if you're just not happy, then don't tell us anything about it and keep going, right? And that's how, usually how it works in our household. It's kind of the same with the Lord's Supper, isn't it? We do this, uh, Brother Wynn said, once a quarter. You know, what's the right amount of time to do the Lord's Supper in a church? The answer to that is yes. I know some Southern Baptist churches, not many, this would be the, the far, whatever side you want to call it, that do Lord's Supper every Sunday. Nothing wrong with that if that's what you feel led to do. Most Southern Baptist churches, and I'm using a big blanket statement here just in my experience, we do this roughly once a quarter. Why do we do it once a quarter? Well, because a year is divided into four quarters, and that seems like a pretty easy thing to do, right? Sunday school literature is divided into quarters, right? We do it that way just because. It's a tradition. And we do it that way because we want to do it enough to where it's meaningful, but we don't want to do it so much that it becomes a ritual, right? So what we do here as Baptists and what we believe is that this is bread, unleavened bread, and this is probably Welch's grape juice. I'm not knowing exactly what y'all use here. I'm not going to ask any questions. But chances are Welch's grape juice. That's what I've seen most of the deacons through the years use in those cups. Um, there's nothing magical about that. There's nothing special about that. But we believe it's symbolic of Christ dying on the cross for us, giving his body, shedding his blood for our sins. And when we do that, we are asked or we are commanded to be, you know, we're to, to be a little bit introspective. We need to let God challenge us and, and the Holy Spirit convict us and say, where are those things in my life that aren't right right now before I do this? Because I'm doing this in remembrance of him. We, we know that from the Lord's Supper. Uh, we call that the Lord's Supper, the last supper of Jesus and his disciples. And when we do this, we just kind of do it to remind ourselves of the sacrifice that Christ made for us and how that impacts our lives as believers. Now, we usually do that in Southern Baptist churches as, you know, you're welcome to participate in that if you're a believer and you've been baptized. I always used it with my children when they were growing up and small. They wanted to take part in it. We said, no, God's not going to strike you dead if you, if you happen to get a wafer. Or I can't tell you that if my kids ever went up and got a wafer afterwards, you know, they're preacher's kids. They were always at the church. I spent 30 years working in the local church before I came to this position, so that's why I can say that. So they may have gotten a wafer or two or drank some grape juice or two after church. I'm, I don't know about that through the years. But we'd always use that as a teaching moment for them. This is, you know, whenever we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. We had one of our kids that blamed us because wouldn't, we wouldn't let him be baptized when he was three years old, you know, kind of thing. And uh, he eventually followed through at a little bit of later age and did that. So all that to say, we'll get into our sermon now. just wanted to give my little sermonette on why we do and how we do the Lord's Supper. How many of y'all have ever heard of Harry Truman? Not the president, the other Harry Truman. Y'all ever heard of the other Harry Truman? The other Harry Truman lived near Spirit Lake in Washington uh, State, not Washington, D.C., and he lived on Spirit Lake on the side of Mount St. Helens. Now, y'all know what happened in, night, in Mount St. Helens, right? So in 1980, on my birthday, May 18, 1980, so remember that if you want to get me something in the future, uh, Mount St. Helens blew its top 
I mean, it was a big mountain, and most of that went away. The experts had warned Harry that uh, he needed to leave. So before Mount St. Helens erupted, they didn't realize the extent of that it would, it would erupt, but they were telling people, something's coming, something's going to happen, we're not exactly sure what, you need to get away. And uh, Harry would had been there a long time, and Harry probably wasn't the most friendly person, I'm guessing, I don't know much about him. But they had been warning him that something was coming for at least 50 years, and uh, he always kind of said, I'm going to stay here, I'm never leaving, I'm not going anywhere. And that happened on May 18, 1980, that the volcano exploded, spewing out gases and debris 200 miles an hour, followed by ash catapulted 12 miles into the air, and Spirit Lake quickly became filled with lava, and the total area was devastated. Harry Truman lost his life that day, never was found again, as you can imagine. A 200-mile-an-hour flow of lava and trees and earth and the mountain coming down. Uh, we went out to Mount St. Helens a couple of years ago and saw nothing but clouds. Uh, but we did get to go to the visitor center and see exactly what had happened and where it was. But the experts had not been right for 49 years, and then in 1980 they were right. And Harry lost his life because he said, I'm not going to listen to you. Y'all have been saying that for all these years. Nothing's ever happened. I'm good where I'm at. And he lost his life that day, some 53 going on 54 years ago. We know that the experts in our world are not always right. You just have to turn on the news and realize that, right? Things change over time. But we always know that God is right. And when we rebel against him and the authorities that he has established in our lives, we call that sin, right? So I want to look at that real quickly in the life of Saul. Um, Long before Saul had come around, Israel had been, um, I guess you would say, uh, beat up and, and taken advantage of, and they had just really been treated bad by the uh, Amalekites uh, while they were in the wilderness. And then in Exodus, the Lord had promised to avenge their act of war someday, and the time had come for that to happen under King Saul. Now, y'all remember Saul was the first king of Israel that God had established after the Israelites had begged and begged and begged him for a king for all those years. So Saul was in place. And when the time had come, Samuel went to Saul and said, it's time to totally destroy the Amalekites. And God's instruction through Samuel to Saul was, when you go in, it's total devastation. Now, that's a different sermon we can talk about at some point in time, but God's command was, when you go, you wipe them out, and you don't take anything. So you don't take the gold, you don't take the silver, you don't take the livestock, you don't take anything. Everything is to be totally wiped out. And Saul understood that and went along and proceeded to do what the Lord had told him through Samuel, but not all the way. Now, what did Saul do? Do y'all remember that one? He destroyed them. But he said, man, look at all of this good stuff that's here, right? Now, what Saul did was he disobeyed God's command, and he said, I'm going to go ahead and take the the sheep and the livestock and all of the good things that come. There wasn't anything wrong with that in that day and time, because whenever one group of people would destroy another one or they'd go to war they would take the spoils of war they would take the sheep and they would take all the good things and take it back but God had said in this instance you're not to do that 
And so he did, whether it be his pride, whether it be his arrogance, whether it be listening to people that he shouldn't be listening to. When Saul, I wrote this quote down, when Saul saw the fatness of their sheep and their cattle, considered the prestige in bringing back their king, he could not resist and to bring them back and to show publicly the exhibits of his leadership and that they had won. And if you read in Scripture, his intent was clear that he spoke of even putting up a monument in his own honor based upon their victory in war that day. And then Samuel comes back and confronts Saul, and Saul tries to justify his disobedience, claiming that we saw such good stuff, we brought it back for the Lord, right? We're sure that's exactly why Saul did it. We're going to give this to the. We're going to give a certain percentage of this to the Lord, even though we're going to keep the rest of it. Uh, but we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord because of my soldiers were just insistent upon this. And then Samuel replied with a timeless statement that you've probably heard before: "To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams." Right? That was one of those very important things that he said there. And one of the things, if you read in there, it's kind of like what God kind of said to Saul, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? You didn't do what I've asked you to do or what I commanded you to do. And this was the disqualification point. Samuel says to Saul, there's going to come a point in time, you're no longer going to be king because of this. That'd be 15 years later. Didn't happen right away. We know when we read through the scripture of what all Saul went through and kind of the depths of insanity or I don't know exactly what you would call it with Saul that he went through, but he was guilty of rebellion and arrogance and rejecting God's word. And 15 years later, he would lose his life and he would lose his kingship and so would his heirs would lose the same thing. And from that day until Samuel's death, they never saw each other again. So that close relationship between the prophet and the king was broken as well. And we see that God equated rebellion with divination, with witchcraft and all that kind of stuff. And we we know and we see that in the Old Testament. That's not a good thing. And then we also see that God equated arrogance with idolatry. And you don't get too much bigger things in the Old Testament when it comes to God being against was divination and idolatry. You see that over and over again. God's desire for us is obedience in all things, beginning with our relationship with him. Now, rebellion hurts us in many different ways, doesn't it? It breaks relationships. Now, what does rebellion do between a parent and a child or between a husband and a wife? As much as I love my new little granddaughter and was praying for her this morning when I was rocking her, I know that she's going to come some point in times where she's going to rebel against her parents, right? Why do I know that? Personal experience. Not just because I had kids, but because I was a kid, right? Anybody in here ever perfectly obey your parents? I don't see any hands going up. Y'all can smile at that one. That was a little bit of a joke. We know we didn't do that, right? So we know we go through those. We know we have a sin nature. We know we do that, but... Rebellion and sin hurts human relationships. And then between us and God, it puts a spiritual distance between us. Not that God moves anywhere, but we move away from God in that, don't we? Doesn't mean that we're not saved anymore. Doesn't mean that he's just totally done away with us. But it brings 
distance between us to where we're not seeking him, we're not listening to him, and we have something in the way of our relationship with him and us listening to him. They both affect the other. God wants obedience more than anything from us. Not just coming to church, although this is a very important place to be, right? Not just serving in the church, but he wants our heart as well. And Samuel did some good things, but he ultimately rebelled against God. Now, what are some of the sources of authority in our life? Right? Is the Bible one of those sources of authority? Let's put up 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 on the board this morning. There we go. All Scripture is given uh, by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness. Is that a pretty important thing? Oh, there's the second part of it. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Scripture is our ultimate authority, isn't it? That's how we know God. That's how God has revealed himself to us. Now, God speaks to us through a lot of other ways, but if you get a new preacher in here or whatever person you have coming and preaching on Sunday morning, we should always be comparing what they say to what's in God's word. It's our authority. We know, for the most part, what's right and wrong in our lives, don't we? Because we know God's word and we've been taught God's word for all of our lives. Now, the next source of authority, we don't have a problem with the Bible. Let's read Romans 13, 1 through 3. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that are ordained of God. Whoever therefore resists the power resists the ordinance of God, and that resists shall, be receive, shall receive to themselves... Next one. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have the praise of the same. That's talking about how God puts government over us for authority. Now, I don't like that today, do you? That's not a, that's not a positive thing whenever we say that from God's word, but... God does ordain and establish governments to rule over people. Now, there are times, I believe, so don't get me wrong here, where we have to take a stand and say no when it goes against God's word. But I tell everybody right now, there's a pretty important one that I think most of us are probably following, and that's a burn ban, right? Where I live, there's a burn ban. You can't burn trash in your backyard right now. Uh, you're not even supposed to grill on an open flame if you're out somewhere. Why? Because we still have a lot of forest fires going on in the state of Louisiana right now that aren't contained. Got a call last Saturday, I believe it was, from my neighbor saying, there's smoke coming from the woods behind our houses and we've called 911. If y'all want to go ahead and come home, you might want to come home. So there was a brush fire that started behind our house, probably for some kids riding a four-wheeler up and down and got a little bit too hot and kind of started, didn't go anywhere, and the fire department put it, out, put it out pretty quick. But there are things that God puts and establishes over us to take, help take care of us, and the government is one of those. Ephesians 6.1 <clears throat> says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. God puts our parents in our lives for a time for sources of authority. And then Proverbs 1.7 says, fear the Lord, it is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
we know that the, our ultimate source of authority is God and through his word. Now, when we come to the reason I preached a sermon or a short sermon today on rebellion is because we all have rebellion in our hearts, don't we? We all have different points, parts in our lives where we don't tend to give control of things to God because I don't want to. I don't know what the right way to say it is other than we say this is not what something I'm doing or letting God have control of our lives. As we go into the Lord's Supper in just a little while, the reason we're doing the invitation first this morning is I believe the Lord's Supper is a time of having God reveal to us those things in our heart and our minds that need to change. It's just, we're, just because we're believers doesn't mean that we don't have sin in our lives and doesn't mean that God wants to, uh, to do a work in us as we go through our lives. So what we're going to do for these next few moments, I'm just, we're not even going into the invitation yet. Uh, I just want to pray through two verses in Psalm 139 together. And so I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes where you are. And just spend, we're just going to spend a few moments alone with God this morning. So the first thing from Psalm 139 is, search me, O God, and know my heart. So ask the Lord this morning, just in your heart and mind, and praying to him to search you and know your heart this morning. The next thing he says in Psalm 139 is to test me and know my anxious thoughts. Ask God to re- reveal to you or maybe to you to confess to him those anxious thoughts that you dwell on that you need to give to him this morning. And then the psalmist says, point out, God, anything in me that offends you. Ask God to show you this morning what are those things in your life that offend him. And then he prays, God, lead me along the path of everlasting life. Lord, lead me in a life that's pleasing to you, that's lived out in your abundance and lived out as someone who seeks you. So pray that this morning as you've, you've confessed to him. Lord, we come to you this morning knowing that we have way too many anxious thoughts. Lord, there are too many areas in our lives that we need to give to you. But Lord, we know that you're loving and you're graceful and forgiving. And uh, Lord, your 
your heart and your desires to see your children, uh, Lord, to seek you and to glorify you. Lord, during a time of invitation this morning, I just pray that whatever you put on our hearts, if that decision needs to be made public, that it be done. Lord, if it needs to be to stay where we're at and to pray and to, to Lord, just to, to seek you to do that, if it needs to come forward and kneel at the altar here this morning, Lord, I just pray that we would do that. Lord, during these moments of invitation this morning, we just want to, uh, Lord, hear your spirit speak to us. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would just work in this church this morning during these few moments together. Lord, lead us in this time of invitation. Lord, help us to to take any unclean things out of our heart and out of our mind this morning and confess them to you, bring them to you, and Lord, so that we can live a life of, of everlasting life and everlasting joy. Lord, so that others can see that in our lives as we go about our daily business. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's just stand together during our time of invitation. And then after we're done with our invitation, uh, we'll move into our time of Lord's Supper. Reading from Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14, says, When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he gave to them, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he had taken a cup and given thanks and said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for this day that you give us to come to your house. We're thankful for this opportunity to be a part of this community, Lord. Lord, we're just here to lift you up, 
pray that you give you all the praise and honor that you deserve. And you are worthy of that. We're not. You are. So we just lift you up right now and give you the praise and honor that you deserve. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. And in the same way, he took the cup after eating, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we pause now remembering so many years ago that you left your throne in heaven, that you came to earth as the Lamb of God. We thank you, Lord, that because of your love, you were willing to die across die on the cross for even though you lived a perfect life. Lord, we know that by your word that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. So Lord, tonight, this morning, we we thank you for not just remembering, but the, the fact that we confess that you did shed your blood that we might have opportunity to have everlasting life with you. So Lord, help us now to remember what you did for us that we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for the blood that you shed that required that was required for us to have our sins covered. Lord, we praise you for all you have done, all you are doing. Lord, we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for our time around the table, Lord, where we could, um, Lord, really just focus on what you did for us. And so, Father, I pray that as your church goes out, uh, Lord, that we'd be salt, that we'd be light, Lord, that we would uh, take the name of Christ with us where we go and uh, share that love with others. Father, we thank you that we can love you because you first loved us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.